Chapter One of Murder in the Sacristy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord, S.J. Chapter One. It was exactly 8.15 when I mounted the stairs to the little choir loft, each ancient step squeaking under my none-too-dainty shoes. The light over the organ had been turned on. A low purr from the organ indicated that the motor was running and the pump heaving expectantly. But Carl Reinhardt wasn't there, though on the music rack was the music manuscript that he always dragged around with him whenever he thought he might have a few spare minutes at the keyboard. That's the way young composers are, you know. The body of the little church was dark. In spite of all the work that Father Marta Tierney had done on it during the past two weeks, it still looked far more Protestant than Greek Uniate. After all, you can't convert an old Protestant church into one of the Oriental Rite of the Catholic Church with a few strokes of a paintbrush and the addition of a Greek altar and the essential icons. Still, with Father Tierney in his new Greek vestments, Carl at the organ, and myself singing the beautiful, if melancholy, responses of the liturgy, the church, when it was officially opened on the coming Sunday, probably wouldn't displease the few Greeks and white Russians who made up its sketchy membership. I moved about the organ loft briefly, then sat down on the organ bench and improvised a few chords. I am not much of an organist, but I managed a handful or so of fairly matched notes when the old, wheezy organ emitted a squeak. I stopped and turned around wondering just what had happened to Carl. For it was all a little queer. The lights on, the organ motor running, music set on the rack, the church dark, and no Carl. He was such a thoroughly reliable fellow that if he set the time of rehearsal at 8.15, nothing would keep him away but an accident, a sudden death, a murder. I heard the door of the sacristy bang open with a vicious thump. A flash of light spread into the reconstructed sanctuary, and Carl leaped out into the light, looked up toward the organ loft. The church was not long, and it didn't take much scrutiny to realize that Carl was in some wild mood. He yelled, Pierre! I answered across the empty church. It's murder, he cried. Come down as fast as you can. Murder? I dashed across the organ loft, switching off the organ motor as I ran, clattered down the narrow, resounding stairs, and through the church with its scarred old pews, now faintly lighted from the sacristy and plowed into the chancel. Carl grabbed my shoulder and pushed me forward, at the same time restraining me in my mad rush from going far enough to fall over what lay stretched out on the floor of the sacristy. It was the Russian sacristan, Ivan Radoff. His body had fallen forward, away from the sanctuary, and his face had turned as he fell, so that now it was in profile on the dark rug. I knelt at his side in an impulsive movement that was mostly curiosity. His body was still warm, but the back of his head had been bashed in with a blow that clearly had squashed out any possible spark of life. I got to my feet slowly. No doubt about it, I said. He's dead. But even so, there's a chance, and if we phone at once for the police and the doctor. Carl's strong hand, the hand of a skillful musician, swung me around, and I saw what he meant me to see. In the wall of the reconstructed sacristy, which had once been the plain little vestry of the old Protestant church, Father Tierney had built a small wall safe. The safe's door had been wrenched open and it hung crazily, like a broken gate, from the wall. 
I peered inside, even though there was light enough to make close scrutiny unnecessary. It was stripped clean. Had Father Tierney used that to store anything, I asked. Had he, replied Carl. We stood there looking at each other, the dead man lying between us. I don't know what that strange paralysis is that comes over all men in the presence of death, and far more stranglingly in the presence of death by murder. I just know that for a moment neither of us wanted to move. It was Carl who broke the paralysis. Carl's a natural leader, and he takes situations in hand. We'll get Father Tierney, he said quietly. At the same time, we can call the police. Will you stay with the body? Let me go, I said, and you stay here till we come back. Despite the situation, Carl grinned. He reached over the dead man and patted my arm. We'll both go, he said. Come on. And he circled the body swiftly and made for the sacristy's rear door, which gave on the small yard, the alley, and a shortcut to the rectory. I followed him but stopped when Carl's strong hand grabbed the handle, fumbled for the key, rattled, and shook the door. He turned back, puzzled. It's locked, he said in explanation, and the key's gone. He lifted his hand, and even with the shadow of the doorknob falling upon it, I could see that the keyhole was empty. We stood again with that same hesitancy. I wondered whether Carl thought he saw doubt or suspicion in my eyes, for he hurried into a quick explanation. I came in just a little earlier than I had expected, he said. Tonight during dinner, the first notes of a melody started stringing themselves together in my mind, and I knew that if I could get a few minutes at a keyboard. So I dropped into the church, using my front door key, of course. It was just about eight o'clock. He stopped and thought, puckered his forehead. It must have been slightly after eight, for when I stopped in the drugstore for a package of cigarettes, the clock, I remember, showed not quite eight. I turned on the light, started the motor, and sat down to try out the melody. You know how it is when a fellow has an idea and wants to get it down on paper. I was all wrapped up in it, but not so wrapped up that I didn't hear some sort of muffled sound from the sacristy. That is, I thought it came from the sacristy. But my stars, with the noises on Blue Island Avenue, cars, motors, wagons, kids shouting, well, I wasn't sure, and so I went on playing. Then I did hear something. It was the sound of a door opening and closing. Then there was just one muffled groan and a thump. You know that unmistakable thump of a body falling heavily, in a faint, in death. I know that I stopped playing and sat there on the bench, wondering whether I was getting the jitters or whether I had heard something I should investigate. Pierre, that's where I made my mistake. If I had moved the second I heard that thump, I might have caught the murderer. His hand moved toward the body in a sort of sick revulsion. I put my fingers reassuringly on his arm. And maybe got a blow or a bullet that would have piled you right on top of him. I said, no, thank God you didn't rush right down into a murderer's arms. Then what? Well, I finally decided to investigate. I just couldn't go back to my keyboard with that thump reverberating in my mind. So I walked quietly down the stairs and made my way on tiptoe through the dark church, opened the sacristy door quietly, and, I don't know why, closed it behind me. I had the deuce of a time finding that switch. This makeshift church doesn't even have electric switches where anyone can find them. But because I was searching for the switch, I moved around the walls, almost hugging them, and that kept me from falling over the body. Though all the time, I give you my word, Pierre, it was a ghastly feeling. I knew that there was another human being in that little room, and that something was terribly wrong with him. I found the switch over there. 
He pointed to its place near the locked door that led out of the sacristy to the small yard and alley beyond. I snapped it on, and... Well, then, I bolted for the sanctuary door, flung it open, saw you, and called. Steady, lad, I said, tightening my grip on his arm. The police will have this all in hand in no time, and we'll probably be back at our rehearsal inside an hour. Poor Father Mart, he said, all set to open his little church next Sunday. Come on. And we hurried back through the dimly lighted church, out the doorway, and onto Blue Island Avenue, and then to the little cottage next door, which Father Mart Tierney was using as an improvised rectory. Everything about St. Sergius Greek Uniate Church, as you've certainly guessed by this time, was pretty much improvised. I'm afraid we pushed that bell with an emphasis and insistence frowned on in any book of etiquette, but it brought Father Tierney to the door in a hurry, and he grinned at us in that friendly Irish fashion of his. "'Hi, boys,' he said, "'and how's the greatest choir in the length and breadth of the Archdiocese of Chicago tonight?' "'Father Mart,' said Carl breathlessly, "'something terrible's happened. Come along, over to the church.' "'I'll give Father Mart full credit. He's the kind that wastes no words when the situation calls for movement.' He literally pushed us back off the little step that led us to his cottage, onto the sidewalk, and then, grabbing each of us by an arm, propelled us toward the church. He didn't say a word, but once inside the church he stopped, and Carl took the lead. This way, said Carl, and we moved up the aisle with very unritualistic haste and scrambling. I stood watching Father Tierney as he stopped in the doorway of the sacristy and saw the murdered man. Ivan, he said, and then turned to take over the situation. Carl, stay here with me. Pierre, dash over to the house and call for the police. Tell them to bring a doctor, or get one yourself if you can. I'll give the poor fellow conditional absolution, and conditional extremunction. Quick! And then his eyes lifted from the man on the floor to the open wall safe, its door wrenched loose and hanging clumsily against the newly papered wall. He stood looking at it for a second, as if he couldn't bring himself to believe what he saw. When he turned toward us, we were standing behind him, and halfway in the sanctuary, his face was the color of fresh dough. His eyes were dark with incredulous anguish. Was that, he managed to say, but you could tell his tongue was dry and unmanageable, was that, that way, when you found him? Carl nodded. I looked at Father and followed his gaze. What's gone, I demanded. What's missing? There was something close to hysteria in the laughter that took him by the throat and shook him briefly. What's missing? he echoed. Nothing, oh, oh, nothing but the sacred vessels for Sunday Mass. Unconsecrated as yet he added, the priest speaking of the voice of an obviously stricken man. I sighed in audible relief. That's bad, I consoled him, but after all you have friends. They'll be glad to replace the sacred vessels. You can borrow others for the time being, and since they were not consecrated. Father Mart looked at me as if I were a lunatic mumbling some atrocious nonsense, pushed by me and hurried to the back of the altar, where I heard him open a little door that contained... I suppose, the elements he meant to use for the fallen man. Since I myself am not a Catholic, either of the Greek or the Latin rite, it was all a little mysterious and unintelligible to me. I turned to Carl. What's wrong? I demanded. Why is he so cut up about a few cheap altar vessels? Carl looked at me almost pityingly. Because, you poor fool, in those altar vessels had been placed a fortune in jewels, the priceless collection of the Countess Olga Stefanska, that's why. I know I whistled, 
the news should have added speed to my feet as i ploughed through the church once more hit the cement sidewalk brushed aside a couple of men dressed in some uniform that vaguely suggested german stormtroopers flung open the door of the little rectory and jammed the receiver of the priest's phone against my ear i don't know just how i phrased it to the officer who answered my call but i remember i managed the words murder and jewel theft and i know that his tone leaped from resentment to electric interest I stood at the door of the little church as the squad car came shrieking up, and the children of the neighborhood crowded round and suddenly awakened interest. It seemed to me that another car was right on its heels, and then came a couple of motorcycles that ejected more police. I led the police down the aisle, reaching the sacristy just as Father Mart was rising to his feet and taking off some sort of small garment he was wearing. The policemen who had reached the scene first glared first at the murdered man, then at the open safe, then at Father Mart. "'You haven't touched anything,' he demanded. "'Just enough to give the man the last sacraments,' said the priest, and then suddenly the little sacristy in the sanctuary beyond seemed to pop open with the mass of cops that filled it. I know that for the next few minutes we heard questions that nobody seemed to answer, and answered questions that nobody seemed to have asked, that the little church was teeming with reporters and photographers and more policemen and wild confusion and loud talking— and then police photographers, and a coroner. And then, mercifully, young detective sergeant Art Riley. Up to that time we felt as if we were the center of a motion picture climax, in which the director had mixed tragedy with the wildest slapstick comedy, drama with utter farce. But sergeant Riley took over, and we sighed with relief. He started by bodily throwing everybody out of the sacristy, except what was still a sizable assembly. Father Tierney, Carl myself, and one policeman, the particular squad cop who had arrived first on the scene. "'Search the place from top to bottom,' he ordered the other policeman, "'and clear out everybody that's not official. When you finish that, search the surroundings. It's possible that whatever they took—well, they may have dropped some of it, lost it. Anyhow, get out of my way until I send for you.' And they cleared. We stood with our backs against the wall— Sergeant Riley and the officer stood on the far side, where they could face the safe and the small vesting table, and the murdered man was lying like a barrier between us. We three, the priest, the organist, and myself, leaned against the vesting table and answered questions. First Carl told his story, almost in the exact words in which he had told it to me. Clearly the events of the evening had cut a groove in his brain, and I imagined idly that whenever henceforth he told the story, which would probably be plenty often, he told in exactly those same words. Then the sergeant shifted to Father Mart. Well, Father, he said, and in a tone that showed he was not merely a Catholic, but probably a good one. Tell me once more just what's missing, and how you happen to have the stuff. Father Tierney took a deep breath. I have been living in my little rectory, you know, hardly more than two weeks, until the church could be got ready. I have been saying my mass in the little convent over on 13th Street, well, the very day after I took over the church and the rectory, this strange lady called on me. You could tell she was a lady, even though she was dressed poorly. She told me she was working as a sort of receptionist in a department store restaurant. Sergeant Riley made a quick note, asked for the name of the department store, and then the name of the woman. She's calling herself Irma Romani, the priest answered quickly. Calling herself? The detective looked up in quick suspicion. I could see Father Tierney hesitate. 
I don't know whether I have the right, he said, to tell her name. Radley took a step toward the door, swung it open, and looked out. The police were coming the church with practice skill, but none of them was near the door of the sacristy, except the patrolman who stood on guard. Radley closed the door quietly. You have to tell, father, he said, and there are just us here to know about it until I see the woman myself. She's really the Countess Olga Stefanska, he said. I told my friend Carl here because I wanted to talk it over with someone. Sergeant, I've been an awful fool about this, I'm afraid. Go on, said the sergeant, who had, one could tell, met plenty of bigger fools in his day. What does she want with you? She brought the most magnificent display of unset jewels I had ever seen in my life. She poured them out on the little table in my rectory, and I must have blinked, for she smiled and said, Father, when my family escaped the murderous reds, this is all that they took with them. These jewels are all that remain of what was once one of the great fortunes in the Russian nobility. I have never sold one, never pawned one. I am keeping them. And I remember that she set her jaw so that highlights settled in the tight lines of her cheek. Till the day when the stench of the Soviet is gone from Russia, and I can return, regain my lands, and live as a Russian noblewoman should. The sergeant went briefly cynical. A lady with a nice sense of the dramatic, he said, then to the priest, Go on, father, if you will. Well, the priest continued, taking another deep breath, she put it this way. If it becomes known that I have these jewels, there are a thousand men who would kill me willingly to get them. Again the sergeant interrupted. Did she mention any of them, he demanded, any, that is, by name? The priest shook his head. She somehow seemed to expect me to understand what she meant. Well, she finally got to her point. Father, she said, the safest possible place for these jewels would be in the sacred vessels. No one would dream of looking for them there. Besides, and she smiled shyly, I am myself a uniate Catholic, and though I cannot give even to the Lord my family's fortune, I should like for a time to have these jewels serve him. I suppose a million crimes have been committed because of them. Maybe for a little while they can be devoted to Christ and his church. The sergeant looked at the priest, his eyebrows knitted, his head tilted far forward. So the jewels were merely alone to be returned? When? I don't know, the priest replied. How many of them? What proportion had been used for the sacred vessels? I wanted speed, for I'm opening, or I was opening, our little church on Sunday. So I took them to Goldlieb's, a highly respected, very conservative firm, as you know, and asked them to take care of the assignment at once. Today they returned to me a chalice, two Cyboria, and the remaining unset jewels, almost half of the lot. I put them all in the wall safe just before dinner, and now... I thought for a moment that he was going to break down, but the sergeant cut in, walked across the rear door of the sacristy, and laid his hand on the knob. I'm taking a look around and back, he said. Obviously, since Mr. Reinhardt and later Mr. Anton here were out in the church, the murderer went this way. He rattled the knob, and it held. He fumbled with the key and found none. I noticed that Father Tierney had moved out into the sanctuary and was kneeling before an icon, on which the light from the sacristy shone brightly. "'The door is locked,' said the sergeant, puzzling over the obvious. Carl spoke up. "'The janitor here, Ivan, would have the key.' The sergeant was on his knees beside the dead man and going through his pockets. He brought forth a bundle of keys and tried each of them. None of them fitted. 
Strange, mused Riley aloud. None of them works. Yet he should have had. He went to the sanctuary door and called Father Tierney in a low voice. Sorry, Father, he said, but have you a key to the sacristy door? Father Tierney dug inside his cassock and pulled out a bunch of keys, selected one, and handed it to the sergeant. The detective took it, but instead of going to the door, stood holding it in his hand and regarding it with a speculative eye. Swiftly he turned on the priest. How does it happen that this man, who was both a janitor and a sacristan, had no key to the sacristy? he demanded sharply. The priest looked up, puzzled. But he had a key, he answered. I gave it to him when he took over last week. I am sorry, said the detective, but he hasn't any sign of that key tonight. Who else, besides yourself and the sacristan, has a key to the sacristy? No one, replied the priest. Carl interfered. After all, he said, this was until recently a Protestant church, and any of a dozen men might have kept keys for the vestry. I stumbled in, and I realized I had stumbled even as I spoke. But Father Tierney had the lock on that door changed, don't you remember? It was a bad blunder, and I know I flushed as I spoke. I hadn't realized what might be implied in the fact that Father Tierney had the only key to the sacristy that we could find, and the sacristan had none. Unless, said the sergeant, almost as if he were reading my mind, the sacristan here gave his key to someone. A patrolman appeared in the doorway. They've come for the body, he said, and we all stepped back against the wall while the newly arrived squad came in. With practiced callousness, they picked up the body of the murdered man and carried it out through the narrow doorway. The eyes of all of us followed the grim procession, death at its ugliest, and then, as we heard the footsteps resounding through the little church, our eyes swung back. Almost simultaneously, we seemed to see the object on the floor, but the sergeant swung into action first. There, crushed by the body of the dead sacristan, was a small piece of black cloth, shapeless and indistinguishable. But I'm sure that there was not a man in the room who did not realize what it was, even before Sergeant Riley's deaf fingers had shaped it back from its original form. It was a priest's beretta that emerged from the battered piece of cloth that had been crushed by the body of the murdered man. And when the detective turned it over, the light of the sacristy lamps seemed to pick out, with fiendish delight, the initials on the inside. M.T., they read, and every eye swung involuntarily and fastened upon the white-faced young priest. End of Chapter 1 Recording by Maria Therese